Good morning. You guys doing well? What an awesome weekend this is. Father's Day. Yeah. Good to have you with us. Uh, it looks like it's working. I mean, we, this, this place is packed out this morning, but we, I've been telling you that we've been packed out on Sunday mornings, and we've asked you to consider maybe coming out on Saturday night, so we've got a few more folks coming on on Saturday night to clear a little room here. We've hit our lid here until we uh, push the walls out. It'll take a couple years before we do that. So thanks for considering that. We have been busting at the seams here uh, as it relates to uh, numbers. So praise God. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. And so uh, to buy a little time, we've asked you to consider coming Saturday night. I know a lot of you can't do that, but uh, good to see you this morning. We have a great study here. We're continuing through the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We will look at verses 13 through 21 one more time before we move on next week to the next section of 1 Peter. Taking kind of a slow pace through this book, we have been marinating in these verses. I love it. I love to study the Bible like that. CrossFit is our current teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. And to, uh, this weekend, we're talking about wholeness of will. Uh, a little bit of background of this text, if you haven't been with us or you've forgotten, as it's easy to do. Uh, these people are getting the living daylights beat out of them. I mean, they're being persecuted for their belief in, in Christ. And so uh, Peter, Apostle Peter, is giving us the resources we need so that our lives do not become bitter, but they become better through the fiery trials of life that we all will face inevitably. And uh, the resources that he's talking about, the big resource is the gospel, and he's gone through the specifics of that in the first 12 verses, and he goes from the first 12 verses into now we're in 13 through 21, where it talks about our response to the gospel. I put this on your notes. Let me bring you up to speed. To the degree I am captivated by God's holiness is to the degree I'll be holy. That's the key text here that we've been looking at for the last three, four weeks. This is our fourth week. And so he says, be holy because God is holy. And what does that mean? Well, I give you a definition there. God has no rivals, <clears throat> no imperfections, and is of infinite and eternal worth and value. And so, it, I mean, it just makes sense. So the more I, I am captivated by God, the more I'm going to, my life is yours, God. It just makes sense. I just want to be wholly devoted to you. I'm going to give my life to you. Because really, the reason why we hold back our lives uh, from giving our lives wholly to God is because we don't trust him. But when you see his holiness, indeed, he is trustworthy in all that he says, all that he does. And so there's where you get that. And holiness is giving your life wholly to God, mind, emotions, and will, head, heart, hands. We looked at the head. We looked at the heart. And now we're going to look at the hands. It is a life permeated by God, with, which is the most amazing life you could ever experience. Now listen to me. Don't miss that. I use a lot of superlative language oftentimes here. And it almost seems like it's hyper, hyperbole. It isn't this, this holy, devoted life to this holy God is the most amazing life you could ever experience. And um, faith is, is also related to this idea of, of us being wholly devoted to God. In essence, we could call it faith. Faith is this. Faith is truth entering our head. It speaks of our intellect. Sometimes people say, well, I believe in God. Oh, really? 
So do you understand what faith is? Faith, faith is truth entering the head, truth about what? Truth about who, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. So, that, so as that gospel is proclaimed to you, it enters your head, your intellect, it ignites your heart, your emotions, so, so it's more than agreement with facts in the head. The Christian faith, belief, is more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that changes everything about you. It, it, it outworks, there's an outworking through your hands, through, through your will, through your volition. It begins to change the way not only you relate to God, you love him, but you love the folks around you. It changes the way you relate to them. It changes the way you relate to your circumstances. It just makes sense because if you know that he is... He is for you and not against you. You're going to relate to your circumstances a little bit differently. And, uh, and so I, I, put another, I put a verse on there. Maybe you can relate to this verse. I think most Christians can. Romans 7, 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Any, anybody relate to that verse? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay. There's not as many as there were on Saturday night, Okay. And so you guys maybe aren't as honest as the people on Saturday night, huh? Because actually, if you're really in touch with the Christian life, that's your verse right there. You're going to go, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not even coming close. Exactly. You need Jesus. It's just evidence of the fact that you need to run into his arms. And so let me ask you this question by show of hands. How many would like to have more self-control in a particular area of your life? Okay. Show of hands. Yeah. Maybe it'd be, uh, I, I made a list here of uh, the different areas of self-control that my wife needs. And uh, I, oh, actually, I didn't do that. It's more for me, but uh, really, me. Uh, physically, you know, maybe you want to lose that weight or eat uh, more appropriately. Sometimes you just junk out too much or whatever. Or relationally, maybe you just find you don't respond to negative relationships very well. Conflict resolution, you don't do so well. That, that's about self-control. How about spiritually? How many would say, eh, you know, I probably need to read God's word and uh, spend more time in prayer than what I do? Show of hands? Yeah, so that's, that has to do with self-control. So it's this wholeness of will is what we're talking about here this morning. Or financially, I just have impulsive, compulsive spending habits. Or just emotionally, I just get stressed out when I look at the political landscape of our society. I just... And so it creates all this stuff going on, and so there's, there's a remedy to all of this. And so in our text, this is what we're looking at today. You can see it on your notes, wholeness or holiness. We're using those two words synonymously. Holiness or wholeness of will, behavior, actions is, and we're going to give you seven, seven sentences that help us to understand really how we can have greater self-control in our life, what that looks like. So it's mind, emotion, will. We're focused on, focusing on wholeness of will. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's uh, pray, and then we'll dive into our text. Just take a moment here. And once again, go before the throne of grace. Father God, on this Father's Day weekend, no father or parent has ever loved their child as much as you love us. <laughs> it, it's just amazing. 1 John 3, 1 tells us how great is the love that you have lavished upon us that we should be called your children and that is what we are. May the reality of that truth sink deep into our hearts. You don't love us because we are lovable, but in order to make us lovable, Romans 5, 8 
you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son, Jesus, our savior, to die for us, to rescue us. So God, the only logical response to Christ utterly giving his life for us is for us to utterly live our lives for him, for you. So teach us how we can be wholly devoted to you, mind, emotions, and will, particularly our will. Greater self-control so that, so that you can be more and more glorified in us as we are more and more satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at the text, read straight through it. This is our fourth time we're reading through this text. And... Uh, <clears throat> Starting verse 13, therefore, once again, first 12 verses talking about the salvation we have. It's always interesting when you study through scripture, he always starts with the wealth. Paul does this too. He starts with our wealth and then he talks about our walk. You don't want to reverse that. It becomes legalism. It becomes religion. And so to the degree you understand the riches you have in Christ is to the degree that you begin to step up and take responsibility. And so you can only take responsibility to the degree that you understand what you have in him. That's why he's saying, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's where we get that idea. So when you think of holiness, keep in mind, no rivals. I love that. Our dad has no rivals. So what he says goes. It's a good thing. He has no imperfections. And he is of infinite and eternal value and worth. I mean, there's just that sense of wow. The more you get to know him, the more you'll have that wow and mmm. And that's part of that. And you're going to be wholly devoted to him as a result of that. Yes, of course, I surrender my life to him. I'm going to live for him, verse 17. And if you call on him as father, as your daddy, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's interesting. We'll talk about that couple of favorite verses of mine, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, valuable blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what he did for us is indispensable, no other way unbelievably costly verse 20 he who he was foreknown before the foundation of the world so so man blew it in a major way we brought sin into this world we rebelled against God created all this mess and God's response to that wasn't reaction he had already had a plan from the beginning he already had a remedy before we made the mess of this place. That's what he's saying here in verse 20. He was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, for the sake of you, you and I, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, weight, significance, importance, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So wholeness or holiness of will, behavior, actions, looking for a little more self-control in your life is number one, behavior that is more and more consistent with your beliefs and radically different from the world. 
radically different from the world. I mean, that makes sense. If you've encountered the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, you're no longer suited for a normal life. Particularly if you're walking in vital union with him each and every day, you're interacting with him. You're no longer suited for a normal life. I mean, your life's going to be different, so you're going to be different. And how, what will, how will you be different? Your behavior and your beliefs will be more in alignment. And that's part of sanctification. That's as we walk this gospel out, really understand it, we begin to apply it to the specific areas of our lives. There's the problem that we all struggle with. It's called the gospel gap. We, we say we believe in this God who loves us more than we could ever dream or imagine. And yet sometimes our behavior is not consistent with that. We tend to respond to the people and the things and the circumstances in a manner that would be inconsistent with someone who knows that their daddy owns the place, so to speak. And, uh, and so this is what you'll begin to see more than anything, your behavior that is more and more consistent with your beliefs. I, I base that on verse 14. He says, as obedient children. Verse 17, each one's deeds Matthew 5, 13 through 16, when we went through this teaching series on City on a Hill, Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and do what? Anybody? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you're going to live your life in such a way people will look at you and go, I want what they have. And then you tell them about your Father and then they come into relationship with him. And so that's, that's what's happening as it relates to wholeness of will more and more. So here's my question that I've asked myself quite often, and oftentimes when I sit down and talk with people, and then they're, they're, they're navigating through the difficulties, whatever, whether it be a trial or a temptation, is my uh, behavior in response to the trial and temptation consistent with my beliefs, with, with someone who believes that God is for me and not against me? that nothing can separate me from his love? That would be a great question, that, that uh, he will never leave me or forsake me. So look at your life over the last 24 hours, 48, last week, last year. Is your life consistent with uh, someone who believes that God is, is with them and for them? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a really great question. And too often I find in my own life that it's not, but it gives me opportunity. And when you find yourself not there, it just gives you opportunity to cling to him, to run to Jesus, say, God, help me to narrow the gospel gap in my life between my beliefs and my behavior. Um, so is your behavior more and more characterized by malice and hopelessness and worry and impatience and unkindness and dishonesty and unreliability and insensitivity and self-indulgence? If it is, it's because you're, you don't know who it is that walks through your day with you. Now, don't beat yourself up over it. Just recognize that and, and run to him, look to him, focus on him. We'll talk more about what that looks like and how we do that. Or is your life more and more characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of your life? That's ours through Christ. You don't earn that. That's part of the resources of heaven. That's what he talked about in the first 12 verses. That's wonderful. I want that. I need that. I'm desperate. Because I'm too often found in Romans 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know... What I, for I do, I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. I don't always respond to people the way I, I know I should. So I could keep coming back to him. I need that change. I was talking, uh, our daughter, Natty, 
She's here from Tucson for the weekend, hanging out with her yesterday morning. Went out for breakfast. It's a lot of fun. We were talking about the trajectory that we're all on, and she mentioned a, a teacher. She works for the School of Deaf and Blind there in Tucson. It's a state school. And um, she talked about a teacher that recently retired that was just terribly bitter, and even so bitter that she was almost sabotaging the the ability of that school to continue to minister to those kids. And I thought, that's crazy for a teacher to do that because the teacher's hardest for those kids. And now she's, so what's going on with that? And we talked a little bit about that. And, and it came up in the discussion that every time you make a choice, you're slowly turning into, and this is actually kind of a paraphrase of what uh, C.S. Lewis said of a larger statement that he said, every time you make a choice, you are slowly turning into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Isn't that interesting? So let me say that again. Every time you make a choice, you are slowly turning into a heavenly creature, a hellish creature. So what kind of choices are you making? I know, maybe there's some real negative circumstances. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way that you thought. Listen, it's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you that matters most. It's it's not the events of life that make you feel and behave in a certain way. It's your evaluation of those events. It's what you're saying to yourself about those events. It's whether or not you're, you're adding into the equation of your life. He is for you and not against you. Do you believe that? Oh, you, you might have a said faith. Do you have a real faith? Are you, are you getting that down deep into your heart? Are you crying out to God? God, make that more real to me than anything, even my circumstances, the trials, the temptations of my life. Every time... Every time you make a choice, you are slowly turning into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Now, this, she said that this gal was uh, really nice on the job, but it was probably a lot of pretense, to be quite honest with you. And maybe, you know, and, and things didn't work out with retirement the way that she thought, and so now she's extremely bitter. And it's kind of interesting. That was still down deep within her heart some way, and maybe she was putting on a good show for a while. And maybe not, maybe there was just some real negative things. And it's, it's much more complicated than that, but, but that's number one. Number two, now as it relates to our, our uh, influence on the world, uh, and this is kind of a reminder of what Darren talked about a number of weeks ago. So wholeness of will or behavior action is not isolation. We're not tourists here. It's not assimilation. We're not immigrants but, we're, but it's infiltration. We're exiles, exiles in this world. Did you notice verse 1? We studied this a number of weeks ago. We're elect exiles, verse 17, throughout the time of your exile. Exile, so it's not, it's not isolation. There's a tendency within the Christian community, and there are churches that are like this, that they just isolate. Don't want to be contaminated by the world, our own little holy huddle. So what these folks have is that they, they might have a... Uh, they might have a message, but they have no audience. And then the other response, this is the other response, is just, hey, we're just going to hang out. Jesus, we're the friend of sinners. So we just hang out, we're going to go to the bars, we're going to hang out and go to the dances and all the other crazy stuff that everybody else does. And yet you might have an audience, but you don't have a message because your life really isn't any different from the, from the world. You become a kind of an immigrant and you've just assimilated, you've become like that culture. Does that make sense? So you've got these two extremes working. We go to one of these extremes. But, but infiltration in exile, uh, Jeremiah 29.7 helps us with this. It helps us to understand that. How many are familiar with Jeremiah 29.11? 
That's a wonderful verse. How many have gone back to that verse from time to time when, when life is kind of crashing around you? Show of hands, that's a great verse because it says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes! Because right now, my future doesn't look too hopeful. It's kind of a mess. So you, so you cling to verses like that because those are promises from God, and that's very true. He's reliable. reliable. No imperfections, no rivals. He's working. If he said it here, if he wrote it down, it's happening. But that's also associated with another verse here. It's verse 13 uh, of 29. Not only does he say, I know the plans I have for you, but he says, if you, will, if you seek me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Something like that. I think I just butchered the verse, but <laughs> sorry about that. You will, how's that verse go? Someone help me out here. Say, so you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Yeah, something along those lines. You have to look that up just to verify that. And you should look up everything that I say to verify, okay? Uh, someone said amen really loud over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, you all should be saying amen. Amen, because I could, you know, you don't want me to lead you astray. You want to always go back to the word. Is this biblical? Is this biblical? And so, but he says those two, but did you know that those two verses are in the context of verse, of verse seven, and these folks are in exile. You know what it means to be in exile? Israel was conquered and they were drug away under Babylonian captivity. They're not living in their own homelands. What if another country came in and conquered the United States and they drug you off into their, you know, into their country? And that's how they were living, and yet in the midst of that, in exile, he says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Listen, I'm still in control, and I'm doing some really wonderful things in your life. And if you will seek me with all of your heart, you're going to find me, even in exile. Even when things are not going the way you thought they should be going. And check this out, though. This is what he says. So in exile, this is what I want you to do. This is the kind of people you should be is that you should seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So seek the welfare of the city. The next point helps us to understand that, but let me just make a, a big point. Thank you guys so much for the many ways that we try to do that. We seek the welfare of the city. One of the ways we're currently doing that one of many ways is uh, water drive. You see all the water we got in there? I, we did one truck last year. I think we're going to have about two and a half to three trucks is what Darren said, that water drive for the Phoenix Rescue Mission. That's seeking the welfare of the city. It's important. A lot of other things that we do here also. Number three, here's the next thing. This is what this means, seeking the welfare of the city. So this infiltration, it's being radically different, love God with all of your heart, and at the same time, radically identify. So think about this. So you're radically, you're radically different. They look at your life, you live by a different set of values. We'll take a look at that in, in point number four. And your biggest value is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love him more than anything. And then out of that love, then you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great the great commandment found in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Let me have you do this real quick. Uh, discuss this with the folks sitting around you. I, I know this is kind of a dumb question, but it's, a, it's an important question for us to discuss in that what's the biggest difference between you and God? What's the biggest difference between you and God? <laughs> real quick, discuss that.
Okay, you guys coming up with some good answers? Let me give you my answer to that. Here's the biggest difference between you and God, is that he never gets confused and thinks that he's you. And you do. All the time. And you're not wholly devoted to him because you still want to hold back because you think that he's holding out on you in some way. You don't trust him. And so you want to play God and you want to push him off the throne and you want to call the shots. And that's what's so amazing is that here we are, we take God's place. The essence of sin is me taking God's place and the essence of salvation is him coming down and taking our place on the cross, paying our debt in full. Isn't that amazing? Oh my goodness, that in itself just stuns me. It's just like, what? I'm constantly trying to push him off the throne and he's like, hey, I'm coming down. I'm gonna pay the debt in full and I'm opening up the throne room for you. Come on in. And I'm coming into the throne room trying to push him off the throne. I wanna take your place. Isn't that weird? And yet, hey, listen, you can't take my place. You don't know what you're doing. You don't, you don't, you're not a very good God, okay? You're not a very good God. He's a real, real good God. And, uh, and that's part of it. I love what Tim Keller says. When you act as if you are your own creator, it is cosmic plagiarism. I would call it also cosmic treason. Now, I ended the message last weekend by saying this. I think it's a good, a good statement to remind us here on this Father's Day. A creator owns you. Is that true? A king rules you. But if that creator and king is your father, then all of his love, wisdom, and power are directed towards your best, whatever that might be for your life, directed towards your best interest. All of that. That's wonderful. That's what the Bible tells us. So we love him. Why? Because he first loves us. It always operates that way. So, so if you don't have much affection for God this morning, how do you get more affection for God? Begin to understand how much he loves you. Just marinate in that. Just, God, I, I'm living out of touch with that because I don't have much affection for you right now. I don't really have much attention for you right now. But God, it's evident that I'm living outside of how much you love me. See, this is the love this is the love you have been looking for your whole life. There's, there's nothing that competes, compares, or completes you like his love for you. And the more you understand that, the more you can't help but respond by loving him back. I just, God, it's a response. Our love for him, our worship is just a response of his love for us. And so you always start with his love. Remind yourself of his love. Enjoy his love. And then you respond in love back. And, and this is what it looks like to, to love him back. Let me just give you some things as I look at my own life. And these are kind of hard things. But so to love him back is to diligently follow, to obey all that he commands, whether you agree with him or not because you know that his commandments are from his love and wisdom for our lives. And it also means to patiently accept whatever he brings into your life, whether you understand or not. Well, I don't like the way things are, have gone in my life. You just, you, you trust 
his loving, wise control. You just say, hey, God, I don't understand, and I know I probably won't on this side of eternity, but I know one of these days when I come face-to-face with you, I'm going to understand in ways that I never thought possible, and I will go, wow, you do everything right. And and then the third thing is that this is how you love God, is that you joyfully expect uh, great things from God, knowing that he can take the real bad and work it for our good and his glory. So you just, that's love. Just like, God, my life's, my, my life's holy, yours. I give you my life completely. And then, and as you walk with him like this, it's only natural and normal for you to love people and you want them to have the same kind of relationship. Second Corinthians one twenty four, Paul says, we don't lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, meaning your joy in Christ. And so that's what he's, he's saying. So what you do is that if you're walking with him, you're working with the family members for their increased joy in God. That's the best thing you can pass on to them. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking more about this love. Number four, so living in this world as citizens with values of another world. So living in this world as citizens of another world with values, values of heaven. So let me kind of bring you up to speed as we work through this. So holiness or wholeness, holiness of will, behavior, actions is behavior that is more and more consistent with our beliefs. It's uh, infiltration that is represented through being radically different, loving God with all your heart and radically identifying. There's that balance. So you got both, uh, you got a message and you, you've got an audience. You're loving your neighbors, yourself, that's radically identifying, and then now living in this world as citizens with values, things that are important to you aren't important to this world is what that means. Jesus in his prayer in John 17, uh, 15 through 19, he says, uh, we often refer to uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually more of the disciples' prayer. He was teaching the disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is actually the 17th chapter of John. And he's really pouring his heart out to the Father. This is part of the upper room discourse. Shortly after this, he's going to be hanging on the cross for us. And so some pretty deep, rich, meaningful words. And in there, he talks about us. We're in there. And he's praying for us. And he says there, uh, don't take them out of this world, but protect them from the evil one in this world. In fact, let me read the verses, John 17, 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. So he says, sanctify them. So, so we have a different set of values. We're set apart from this world. We do life differently than those that don't know Christ. And your word is truth. The truth brings freedom to our lives, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So as Jesus was sent into the world, we're to go into the world to bring the light in this dark place, love where there's hatred, hope where there's there's hopelessness. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So I I uh, uh, consecrated myself. I died to give them life so that they can live their life more fully for me. Um, I gave you another place, uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 kind of goes through a list of uh, what these values look like. One of many great descriptions of these values that we are to live by. But I wanted to read to you a letter. Uh, <clears throat> this is a letter to Diognetus. We don't even know who the author is, but it's very, very old, first, second century after Christ. And it tells us something about Christians. And in it, the writer says, and he goes through these descriptions of Christians in the first couple of centuries. And you guys know this, that the Christians in the first century turned the Roman world upside down, <clears throat> and they did not do that through politics. You know, politics are important, but they didn't do it through politics. 
they did it because they, were, they had a different set of values. And then this is what the writer said. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to make a comment and then I'll give you the, my understanding of it or the paraphrase of it. <clears throat> so in it, the writer says, Christians, they busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. In other words, they live by biblical values. They're exiles seeking the welfare of the city. See, when all the... When all of the sicknesses came into the city, everybody else left, this Christians stayed and ministered to the sick, even to the cause of their own sickness. Here's another statement they made. They marry, they marry and have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. So they believe in, in the family, in the sanctity of life. Here's another as it relates to values is that they are persecuted by all, yet they, they love everyone. In other words, they suffer well and they forgive and love their enemies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They're hospitable, but not promiscuous. They are poor and yet make many rich. In other words, they don't have much to give, but they enhance people's lives by their love and acceptance of them. Here's the last one. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. They don't have much from this world's perspective. In other words, they don't have much from this world's perspective, but live happy and fulfilled lives. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. And so that's the difference that Christ makes in our lives, a different set of values as we live by that. Now, now we're going to drive it home. We've got two more big ideas as it relates to this and understanding uh, wholeness, holiness of will, behavior, actions. And this is where we got to really work on our self-control. This is how we begin to have this different kind of life. And it's number five, wanting to be holy, wholly devoted to God more than you want anything else because your heart is most captivated by Christ's love. Because your heart is most captivated by Christ's love. And we, we got to spend just a, uh, just a little bit of time. We'll move through this pretty quick though. Jonathan Edwards, from his book, Freedom of the Will, this is what he, he made a statement. It's a very convicting statement. He says, you always do the thing you most want to do. So let me make that statement to you. You always do the thing that you most want to do. And I can immediately hear some uh, responses from the crowd here this morning saying, uh, that's not true. I was robbed at gun, gunpoint a number of years ago person said, give me your money or I'll shoot you. I gave him my money. I didn't want to give him my money. I had a lot of money and uh, I didn't want to have to do it. Jonathan Edwards would respond, oh no. Yes, you did. You don't have it right. You had a choice. You could either stay alive and staying alive was more important than hanging on to your money. You always do what you most want to do. Well, I didn't want to give them my money. Yeah, but you wanted to stay alive more than you wanted to hang on to your money. So staying alive was more important, so you did what you most wanted to do. We all do that. If you were to look at your life and look at your behavior, you always do what you most want to do, regardless of what you say. Um... So when it comes to life change, it is a fool's errand to only focus on the acts of the will apart from the loves of the heart. 
You guys tracking with me there? So what we tend to typically do, hey, I need to start reading my Bible and praying more, or I need to start saving more money. I need to put away at least three to six months worth of savings for the, you know, if I lose my job or whatever. I need to do these things. So we focus on the acts of the will, but what we have to do is focus on the loves of the heart. The reason why you're not doing is that, that is because you love something more than you love that. We always do what we most want to do. So not only do you have to kind of, okay, I don't like that behavior, so what is it that's driving that behavior? You've got to look at the love, the love, the love of the heart that drives certain kinds of behavior. So you've got to really explore deeply what's going on in your, in your life. And even more importantly than that is we're talking about motives here. We're really looking at what drives my life. Why do I do what I do? And you've got to get to these motives. And we shared this last week that really, not just looking at the loves of your heart, but the biggest love of our heart is ourselves. And so, they, so you can actually be a real bad person for self-centered reasons and become a very good person for self-centered reasons. And you still haven't really dealt with uh, fundamentally what's wrong with all of us. See, there's a major difference between doing good for your sake your glory and doing good for God's sake, for God's glory. Fear and or pride motivated good behavior. We talked about that. That's more common virtue. Fear, what will people think? Pride, hey, look at me. Look what a great person I am. I really have it together. That's for your glory. That's not for God's glory. And you can look really good. That's what, where the Pharisees were. And Jesus said, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So fear and or pride motivated good behavior, your glory restrains the will. Yeah, you can change. I've seen people quit really bad habits only to establish other bad habits or good habits. So fear and or pride motivated good behavior, your glory restrains the will but doesn't transform a self-centered heart like one smitten by Christ's glory. So everything that we do, we need to look, why am I doing this? Whether it's weight loss or having better, healthier relationships or the kind of career I pursue? Is it about me or is it about God's glory? And that you were created for God's glory. So you gotta get real deep down into your heart to find out uh, what's going on. And, um, and so I gave you a number of verses here. So in this text, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about a heart that's really captivated by God, a heart that's motivated by the glory of God. Verse 14, as obedient children, you're a child. Man, the more you understand that, of course you're going to want to honor your father. Verses 15 and 16, be holy because he's holy. Yes, he's trustworthy. I'm going to give my life to him. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. By the way, the fear here is different from the fear that I talked about, not a, a fear, common virtue. This is a fear of more of true virtue of a uh, life-altering, joyful, all-in-wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. I mean, you're just like, ah, he did that for me. He loves me. I, yes. See, that's what should be motivating our lives. Everything that we do, everything that we say, yes, it's about you and your glory, God. Fill me up with you. Help me to know you. Help me to experience you in my life. And then verses 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from your empty way of life that was passed on to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Jesus 
emptied from that, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. I mean, so he's really appealing to that, that deeper level. So let me go back to the point. Wanting to be holy, wholly devoted to God more than you want anything else because your heart is most captivated by Christ's love. Now, everybody look up here just for a minute because you gotta get this. Here's what I have people tell me all the time. Okay, yeah, wholly devoted to God, whatever. There's some things that I don't like what Jesus, I don't, you know, Jesus said some things I don't agree with. I don't agree with the stuff that he says about money. I don't agree with the stuff he says about sexuality. I don't agree with the things that he says about relationships. Turn the other cheek? You gotta be kidding. I'll turn the other cheek, all right. My enemy? Love my enemy? No way. Here's the issue. It's much deeper than that, whether you agree with him or not. It's not a matter of whether you agree with him or not. Did he come and die for you? Was he resurrected on the third day? Then he is who he said he is. And the only normal response would be, I don't fully understand why you say these things, but I submit to you because you have my best interest at heart. I give my life totally to you. So the issue of not agreeing with him goes much deeper than that. Did he rise from the dead? Is he God in the flesh? Oh my goodness, if he's God in the flesh, of course, follow him. Pedal to the metal all the way. No restrictions. See, that's the deeper issue. Yeah, but my wife was telling me that she watched a video this uh, a couple days ago from a philosophy professor from, uh, what's the big, Grand Canyon University. And he was saying, well, you really can't trust the Apostle Paul. He didn't really, he, didn't, he wasn't too savvy when it comes to sexuality and other things like that. And so whatever he's saying there, you just really can't put too much weight in what he's saying there. And that's, that's the issues that we're facing currently. A lot of people say, yeah, Jesus was a good person and all that. And I don't really agree with everything that he says. And wait, 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 wait. Do you understand? This is God in the flesh. And if he's God in the flesh, you're going to follow what he says and not only that, do you understand his perspective of the scripture that we study and hold dearly week in and week out? He was very high regard. He was saturated with the word. And by the way, the Old Testament pointed to him. The New Testament points back to him. It's all about him ultimately. Is he God or not? Is he God or not? Yes. If you believe that, you're going to... You're going to go for him. That's, that's the bottom line. So wanting to be holy, wholly devoted to God more than you want anything else because your heart is most captivated by Christ. He came to this world. How do we know there is a God? He showed up here. He invaded our pathetic plight with his presence, power, and peace to give us a life that most only dream about. Yes, I want that life. Here's the last point. This is where we wrap it up. So this is going even a little deeper on this idea. Being as holy as you are aware of what your sin has cost Jesus. The more you realize that sin is trampling on his love and wisdom, the more you will hate sin. You're just going to say, man, I don't want anything to interfere with my relationship with him. And so I gave you the verses, verses 18 through 21 from our text. Once again, precious blood of Christ. I mean, this is before the foundation of the world who through him we're believers. He raised him from the dead. He was raised from the dead. This is God in the flesh. That's the idea. Proverbs 8, 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, one, one last time. I'm gonna have you turn to the folks next to you. This is a hard one. This is a hard one. Turn to the folks next to you and see if you can define the question 
the word evil. What is evil? How would you define evil? How does the Bible define evil? Because, because it says here, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and it goes along with being holy as you are aware of what your sin has cost him. The more you realize that sin is trampling on his love and wisdom, the more you hate sin. So what is this evil? What is this evil? Real quick, do that. Okay, you guys coming up with some good uh, definitions? What, you, what kind of definitions are you coming up with? You want to yell them out to me? Anything apart from God. Anything apart from God? That's a good answer, Gary. Yeah. What were you guys thinking along those lines? Absence of God? That's pretty, pretty evil. Yeah, you, you don't have God anywhere on the radar. In fact, it says that in the first uh, chapter of Romans, is that we just, you know, we just ignore God. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Just he's out of, out of sight, out of mind. Anything we do that hurts the Lord. Actually, and that's, what, that's the difference between legalism, uh, a religious person, is that they break rules. Oh, I broke another rule to where uh, the gospel and having a relationship with God is that, no, I broke his heart. That's an understanding of it. Let me give you the definition of evil. You can write this down. It's, on your note. it's not on your notes. It's uh, Jeremiah 2.13. This one hit me pretty hard a number of years ago and as I began to th think about this. Evil is Jeremiah 2.13. Now listen, everybody listen. For my people have committed two evils. So he's going to define two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So not only have they committed two evils, the two evils is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Notice the description, the fountain of living water. So we reject the fountain of living water and we dig our own wells. Here, here's what it means, is that when we look to anything in creation as being more desirable and more satisfying than the fountain of living water, God, the creator, that's what that means. And he says, that's evil, that's wicked. And guess what? We're all guilty of it. And that's why we're desperate for God's grace. Now, I, this is, uh, I promise this is the last Havasupai Falls picture that I'm going to show you. Okay, so check this out. Fountain of living water. This is just coming out of the ground, this water. This is Havasupai Falls and... Uh, and so as we were walking up, I looked over the edge, and here's these guys jumping into the water. Fountain of living water. I want you to look at that just for a moment, and I'm going to tell you something that you need to not forget because we're going to summarize all of what we talked about in the last four weeks as it relates to holiness. And here it is. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Keep that picture up there just for a moment. This is what it says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's the deal. The essence, and this is on your notes, the essence of the Christian message is not behave, but behold. And it's in the beholding, it changes your behavior. So this is what's so phenomenal about the Christian life. It's not, come on, get your act together. What's wrong with you? Behave, behave. That's not the Christian life. It's behold, behold. As I was thinking about this, the fountain of living water, the only way to change your motives and ultimately your behavior is to go to the foot of the cross 
of Jesus Christ and to plunge yourself into this stream of living water regularly, regularly reflecting, rejoicing until your heart is sweetened and resting in him where it just chases away the fears in your life because you're resting in his love and releasing your grip on those things that you think you can't live without. That's what, as the, as the temperatures rise here in the desert, this is my prayer for you throughout the summer months and as we continue through 1 Peter, is that you would, as I said here, plunge yourself into the stream of living water. Only he can satisfy you. It's not behave, it's behold. And the more you behold, the more you will behave in a manner that's consistent with who he is and what he's done for your life. Good stuff, man. Not because I said it, because it's right here. It's good stuff. Stand with me. Let me, let me end with this statement here. So, here's what I'm going to challenge you. This is the blessing here at the end of our time together. By the way, next week we'll be talking about what it means to be born again. It's all part of this. What does that mean? Not a morally restrained will, supernaturally transformed heart. What is that? How does that happen? What does that look like? So here it is. It's one of my favorite hymns. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May that be true about us this summer, unlike ever, ever before. And if that is true, you will be ruined for anything else and you will find your deepest joy in him unlike ever, ever before in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.